This episode of the Political Worldview podcast is funded by the University of Birmingham's Alumni Impact Fund. For more information on this and other projects, please visit birmingham.ac.uk forward slash alumni. Hello world, welcome to Political Worldview podcast, July 27th, 2017, the Oil Can't Buy You Happiness edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. It's the high summer season uh, here at Worldview Towers, but while both students and staff are scattered, I have my two loyal, trusty co-hosting teammates still with me uh, in the last days of July. I am joined, as usual, by Cristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Cristalia? I am doing well. Is it true that we're just at the end of July? It feels like mid-August already or somewhere towards September. Time is uh, flying. T- t- time is is it flying or going slowly? Fleeting, I can't need, need to think about which way round that works. It's like the Trump presidency, maybe it's, <laughs> in uh, its own zone. Yeah, it, it, it's like a Bermuda Triangle <laughs> in which time slowly. moves mm. differently. Parallel, and, parallel, yeah, like an event horizon, maybe, <laughs> maybe imminent. Um, Much like that. Otherwise, I'm well and enjoying the. I was going to say afternoon of sun, but. Mm. It's uh, British summertime is at full peak with drizzle and a slate grey sky. Exactly. Um, But perhaps with the bizarre. Uh, convex networks of temperature control this building has. Something moderate is good. We are also joined by Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Still here, still cynical. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't get the impression that our two topics today are going to change that. They are, first, as what remained of the late Hugo Chavez's Bolivarian revolution implodes in Venezuela, we ponder that country's misfortunes, mismanagement, and miserable-looking future. Second, Saudi Arabia has a new heir to the throne. He's only 31, and he has big ideas. What's not to like? We discuss. A little over a decade ago, Venezuela was the model for a radical new approach to economic and social policy in Latin America. Its charismatic leader, Hugo Chavez, buoyed by repeated endorsements at the polls and having seen off a coup attempt orchestrated by domestic elites and tacitly nodded at by the United States, put the pedal to the floor in driving forward the Bolivarian Revolution, a socialist effort to reform the country's economy and politics uh, along extreme lines. This involved radical redistribution of national resources, the expropriation of assets and businesses on a grand scale, and the concentration of vast authority in the hands of the state and the president, all this aided by high prices for oil, of which Venezuela has the largest proven resources or reserves, I should say, in the world. I learned that in the course of preparing for this this item. Bad luck, Saudi Arabia. Better luck next next time. Um, Flash forward to the present day. Chavez is dead of natural causes in 2013. The oil price has plummeted and the country's economy, it is no exaggeration to say, is in ruins. Ravaged by hyperinflation, crippled by debt and with shortages of food, medicine, power and other essentials straining public order to breaking point. Uh, Criminal violence is also rampant. President Nicolas Maduro, Chavez's successor, emerged from within the Bolivarian movement, but I think it's fair to say lacks his charisma and his wider political support, and he increasingly seems to lead the country only at the sufferance of the military. So how did one of the wealthiest and most sophisticated countries in the Western Hemisphere end up in such dire straits, and what lessons should we draw from it? Um, We are fortunate enough to have with us, uh, for the purpose of this item, listeners will be relieved to hear a bona fide expert in things Latin American. That is Luis Monroy Santander, a doctoral researcher from our International Development Department. How are you doing, Luis? Good. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you very much for, uh, for being here with us today. We appreciate it, um, as, as do our listeners, I'm sure. Um, I laid the kind of the basic groundwork uh, for the situation there. It's fair to say that while looking at this for research purposes, I think I knew things were bad. I knew that Venezuela had not been in a good way for some time. The sheer apocalyptic quality of the economic circumstances in which they are now in surprised me. They also seem to be at the absolute precipice of some kind of 
either collapse of political order or switch to full-blown dictatorship. The mm-hmm. new stories I was uh, I was reading that were most recent were basically about Parliament uh, being neutered completely of its powers by the courts in collaboration with the president about the military's increasing necessity for maintaining rule. It's bad. Is it bad, Louis? Uh, is is my uh, is my quick quick pickup there the correct one? Yeah, I think the most concerning and worthy of analysis point is the relationship between the crisis that you've just explained, characterized by scarce resources, medicine shortages, spiraling crime, not only in Caracas, the capital, but also in the main cities of Venezuela, but also how this constant push and pull between the representatives of the Bolivarian Revolution or the Nicolas Maduro government and the opposition actually impact on society and the effect that they have not only on violence but the polarization that this has caused amidst such a such a terrible crisis mm-hmm. the current situation is marked by two important moments. The first moment is this expectation that Venezuela is having regarding Sunday polls. So on Sunday, uh, Venezuelans are expected to vote under request of uh, President Nicolas Maduro on uh, the creation of a constitutional assembly that will change uh, the Venezuelan constitution. I'm assuming not to make it a much less presidential system in which power is much more decentralized. Correct. The, the, The main interpretation is that this process is vital to Maduro staying in power and it clashes with the previous moment, which is, of course, the election organized by the, in Spanish we call it the Democratic Table or the Committee for Democratic Unity, which is the uh, Coalition for Opposition, who just organized a very informal electoral process amidst many different obstacles imposed by government, asking people whether they accept or not A, Nicolás Maduro's mandate, but B, this constitutional process that is being sort of imposed by by the Nicolas Maduro administration. Because the, the opposition, just to point out, they, uh, at the most recently held legislative elections, got a stonking great majority in parliament, which is what led to the president's need to take as much power as possible away from that parliament. Correct. And adding to that, I guess, the momentum gathered before the 16th of July election organized by the opposition uh, adds on to that. So there's this incredible belief that opposition is moving in Venezuela, that it no longer feels fearful of the repercussions and that can push uh, society towards uh, some sort of change. Um, So, as I said, the the momentum between these two elections is 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 concerning and it's problematic. In the last two days, uh, Venezuela uh, has been seen a general a strike proposed by the opposition, and this is generally characterized by a street uh, blockades, but more significantly clashes between state security forces of Nicolas Maduro and the protesters, uh, mainly in Caracas, but also in, in other main cities. Mm-hmm. So far, there has been a 48-hour strike that has been called, and in the first 24 hours of that process, uh, five people have already died and several have been injured. So added to the turmoil and the crisis that has been going on, we're seeing more examples of violence uh, in, in, in the last days. And just to be just to be clear and just to zoom out for a second, I think 102 people have been killed since April, since the protests kind of more or less took a more serious momentum, right? So... Correct. And there have been uh, many evidences or many symbols within that movement of the repression of the the state forces uh, against citizens. So particular artists have been condemned and have been, you know, publicly harassed and just common ordinary citizens, you know, just being physically attacked mm. uh, in, in, in the rift between the forces and the protesters. So excessive force mm. seems to be kind of the big, the big symbol of, of these protests. Mm. And so people are pretty scared about what's going to happen on Sunday. And the thing that I'm noticing is a lot of people crossing over to Colombia. Correct. So what's, what's the feeling on the other side of the border? Sure. 
As a context, it's important to mention that the relationship between Colombia and Venezuela, particularly in the border, has always been contentious, both because of the crisis in Venezuela, but also because of the Colombian peace process. So there have always been these moments, including the Hugo Chavez era, where relations have broken down and the immediate tension is felt along the border, particularly for economic reasons. So uh, in many circumstances, Venezuelans have crossed over to um, you know, the nearby towns in, in Colombia, um, you know, desperately seeking to buy toiletries, to buy food, to buy, you know, things to satisfy their basic needs. And this has created this sort of backlash that on one hand, the Maduro administration or the Venezuelan administration criticizes Colombia for, uh, you know, sponsoring this this fleeing of Venezuelans, but also Colombia contesting that with ideas that there were FARC training camps in Venezuela that were sponsored by Hugo Chavez and later on by um, Nicolas Maduro. Yeah, because I mean to put that into into medium term context, like Hugo Chavez saw himself increasingly over time as a kind of messianic radical leftist revolutionary figure. Uh, the government of Colombia was fighting a long running battle against a left-wing revolutionary guerrilla movement, mm-hmm. and especially over the last 15 years, in a fairly robust right-of-center kind of uh, kind of way, they, they were fighting against that. So that put the two governments in stark ideological tension as well as tension over like basic security national interest type stuff. Correct. And we can see that right now with the responses of both governments to certain allegations that are occurring in the midst of this crisis. So the most current allegation is a public speech made by Maduro condemning the government of Colombia and the government of Mexico of staging a coup with the CIA against him. And this comes from a visit that certain CIA officials have done to both countries under the need of talking to officials of the region to understand better the situation of Venezuela. So kind of exploring, uh, you know, what are the visions of neighboring countries and what is the Latin American approach to what is happening in Venezuela. But President Maduro publicly condemned this. It demanded uh, an apology from the Colombian government for trying to plan some sort of coup. And, you know, particularly uh, Maduro called President Juan Manuel Santos a blood-sucking leech, which... Which is, know, not, yeah, which is not usually the prelude to a rapprochement between a couple of, uh, between a couple of political <laughs> leaders. And the response from Colombia has been very diplomatic. So the uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Colombia, together with its Mexican counterpart, have kind of stated that there is no plan, that there is no coup, and, you know, have demanded that Maduro change the type of language that you know, is he is using to address uh, the both governments. And the accusation that Colombia and Mexico are doing is that these sort of stances by Nicolas Maduro are a smokescreen for uh, the political and economic crisis that is happening in, in Venezuela. And, I mean, as this economic crisis deepens, as people don't have food, don't have power, don't have medicine in any reliable kind of way, you know, even small but important things like toilet paper apparently have become, you know, um, extremely hard to obtain commodities, etc. That's putting a lot of pressure on public order, mm-hmm. and that's got a couple of complicating dimensions, right? One is the armed forces are increasingly necessary as the power of last resort to uphold the government, but while their leadership may well be presumably quite well protected on the inside of the elite tent, they are relying on a large number of troops whose lives are presumably being as affected as anybody else's by this economic crisis. So you know, the, the sustainability of army loyalty in these kinds of economic conditions is a thing. And also, Chavez deliberately cultivated during the course of his rise to power and consolidation of power a kind of um, extra-governmental paramilitary movement, basically, for precisely an eventuality such as this, uh, so that if there was a risk that his movement would be forced out of power, either by the army or by uh, uh, some other means, there would be an armed capacity to resist out there in the country. And Mm -hmm. those kinds of militias are now in place, making the prospect of civil violence much more 
serious than it might be otherwise, right? Correct. And particularly as a response to the blockades and, you know, the, the, the strikes that the coalition for opposition is doing, that becomes a much, much bigger concern. Because yes, there are the Bolivarian forces dealing with the protesters, but there are also side expressions of violence. There are forced disappearances that no one seems to know, you know, how, how they occur. But the culprits are precisely the type of paramilitary approaches and organizations that you are mentioning. Also, there is a deep concern on the way this Sunday's election is being organized because um, there's a kind of a voting quota given to uh, what Nicolas Maduro calls the social sectors. And there's not that much clarity of what those social sectors can be. And there might be some connections with these type of forces that you mentioned. On paper, the social sector forces are represented by workers, unions, pensioners, students, fishermen and farmers, entrepreneurs, and the disabled communities. That's what's been established under, under electoral law. But in reality, people know that these things get confused and blurred quite a lot. And it might open up the space for harassment and for uh, bringing in these type of um, violent actors. Yeah, because Chavez created a lot of the kind of parallel institutional architecture that is customary like a one-party state, mm -hmm. where effectively you have the institutions of government, but you also have these other allegedly democratic vehicles which uh, are representative in a different way at best and which are often perceived as being under the direction and control of the, the whoever is at the top of the, the tree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Walk me back just a bit. What This is just like a newcomer's question. I know that Cuba's economy isn't any great shakes, but we're not talking about 1,000% inflation in Cuba we're not talking about the massive waves of people trying to get out of the country because of the economic situation. Given Venezuela is much more resource-rich than Cuba is, why is it in recent years that Venezuela has become the basket case economy? Is it mismanagement, corruption? Just, is there a, a fundamental root we can seize upon beyond ideology as why this has gone so wrong? Yeah, it is the classic root of corruption and oil-dependent corruption. The Chavez government was too trusting on the power of uh, the national oil company and its ability to generate enough revenue to sustain the revolution. And what ended up happening was a lot of the assets of uh, PDVSA, of the Venezuelan uh, oil company, um, were just given to, you know, the, the immediate connections of Maduro and, you know, the, his his kind of nearby circle, his nearby political circle. Uh, and as such, it led to, you know, incredible scandals that have been promoted inside Venezuela, but because of the, 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 the blockage of media, they haven't been easily reflected uh, to the general to the general public. So, for example, relatives of, of Nicolas Maduro enjoying life in Miami and in yachts and, and, and you know, traveling around and these sort of scandals. Um, but I would add to the to the political crisis and, and this issue of corruption, bringing it up till today that there is a, a contest between a regional community denouncing this and asking for the Maduro administration to kind of open up democratically and accept opposition, uh, even if opposition makes these claims of corruption, versus the, the, the fears of a, a communist-type regime in, mm -hmm. in Venezuela. So the two big momentums that we're having for this contest are the Organization of American States trying to create a resolution condemning um, Venezuela and condemning this process for being undemocratic and to pretty much solve its crisis. But unfortunately, no resolution occurred because of a rejection from the governments of Bolivia, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and of course Venezuela, um, based on the premise that Venezuela should 
have the right to solve its internal crisis in whichever way it, it, it deems possible. And that's in no small part because those governments are... A, ideologically sympathetic, and B, see themselves as possibly being vulnerable to any precedent that gets set for external intervention in these sorts of situations. Correct. That would be the one of the forces, and the other force or the other element that contends this is the, actually the Trump administration. Um, Trump has just established a ban on 13 individuals that are close to Nicolas Maduro. Amongst these individuals are the Venezuela ombudsman, uh, the 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 um, chief of the Bolivarian Guards, so the head of the army, uh, the minister of justice, the minister of interior, who are now on a blacklist uh, in the U.S. where they cannot access financial funds and they cannot. Um, they pretty much have their no yachts, no yachts for them. Correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no new yachts for yes. them. Yes. No. Well, what yachts they have, they will not be able <laughs> to visit. Uh, at but least with, but they did get waters. a very beautiful uh, sword, did they not? He was Maduro gave them um, all thirteen of them a, a symbolic uh, sort of Bolivarian sword. Yeah. yeah. Um, to honor their um, sacrifices mm. for they, the they, they took one for revolution. the team, so this they, this they get instead. I mean, it reminds me of when, we, we, when Fidel Castro died not long ago. We, we were talking about him and his legacy and uh, and all of that. And it th- this brings up in my mind some of the same sorts of tensions. Like when so people listening to this might be thinking, like, why would people go along with any of this. This sounds like a disaster brought about predictably by bad ideas implemented by corrupt people. But Venezuela was not like a a, a peasant's paradise prior to um, the Chavez period beginning, right? It was a highly stratified, highly unequal country with resources very concentrated, often along ethnic and racial lines as well as class lines. Mm -hmm. Um, The political system was a kind of cartel locked up between status quo-oriented forces. So what Chavez promised to do was to crack that open, take a lot of the resources this very wealthy country had and spend them on uh, a broader section of the population's real and, and concrete needs. And they did that, you know, to increase living standards and educational standards um, and so on in, in all sorts of ways. The problem is that whenever that... Like, uh, those are all very reasonable demands, and most of us with liberal sensibilities in this part of the world would, would all be all for it. The problem is that when they manifest concretely in Latin America, they almost always seem to be inextricably bound up with charismatic leaders who bind their own authority up in inseparable ways with the um, the policies they're trying to implement and you know the, the, the distinction between the resources of their movement and party and the state become confused the idea that they would ever leave power starts to disappear very rapidly over the horizon and you know then narratives of uh, uh, counter-revolution and uh, external forces sinisterly intervening come into play but not without foundation like if you are going to radically redistribute resources in a highly stratified country you are going to have some serious pushback from elites and you are going to have some external forces take an interest in that but all of those are very convenient excuses for just putting everyone who disagrees with you in jail and staying in power forever Mm. so it seems fierce difficult to find that social democratic sweet spot where you redistribute the resources without buying yourself an authoritarian state as the price. And I think underlying this, we would have to go back to the early and mid-90s Venezuela and the crisis of both COPE and AD, so the two uh, the two main parties at the time, which they had severe corruption scandals. Uh, they seemed to constantly distance themselves from the people. Um, they didn't show any progress politically or economically, and this is the time where, of course, Hugo Chavez appears. Mm -hmm. So we seem to forget that there was already an opposition crisis in Venezuela, and, you know, this has been changed for the problem of a dictatorship and a communist-type regime. But there's always this question of what is is the new opposition going to look like? Um, And in that sense... Uh, yes, the new figures are arising and there is a big movement in, in, in protests, but we shouldn't put into question that 
there's there's a problem with transparency there's a problem with you know the way checks and balances are being constructed and now at a time where this new call for a new constitution might destroy the che- further destroy the checks and balances in the country particularly because there are concerns that in the new constitutional assembly if the election goes on there will be very little or none uh, presence of the opposition together with possibly reducing the power of the prosecutor and the attorney general's office, which would highly uh, devastate the you know checks and balances between the branches of government. Can, can you explain that to me? Because in most cases, the Constitutional Assembly in other countries are elected representatives. Mm-hmm. And so given that in elections for, par- for the legislature, the opposition has the most positions, why wouldn't the opposition take most of the positions in the Constitutional Assembly if it came to pass? Um, I think it's the the answer to that comes from the responses and the push for Sunday's election. So uh, you have a Maduro government calling for people to vote on this and to you know actively participate versus an opposition who is very concerned with a the validity of the process itself them having organized a counter electoral practice um but also with the fact that this is geared towards changing the constitution to the style of the bolivarian revolution further than what it has already been changed mm-hmm. so in that sense those two calls leave this big concern the opposition does not want to participate in the assembly uh, because it deems the, the the process illegitimate and it's concerned because the push and you know the call for this referendum doesn't come from the people but from Nicolas Maduro himself because right. when the when the opposition won their big majority in parliament they were really close to having enough people to change the constitution through mm-hmm. uh, like a two-thirds vote there mm-hmm. and that then was what triggered the president and the courts and all of that to get involved like by debarring people from taking their seats mm-hmm. and then attempting to to eviscerate the the authority of the parliament altogether um, so if like if the constitution was going to be changed radically, that would have been the conventional mechanism to do it. But the president put a roadblock, an insuperable roadblock, in the way of that. Okay. And this whole other vehicle is now presumably a way for changing the constitution in totally different ways, more advantageous to to himself, possibly via a rigged a rigged vote, which I think is what you're pretty strongly implying there. Correct. And ironically enough, right now the opposition uses as a statement against Maduro um, the call that Hugo Chavez did in 1999 for uh, this type of process, a a referendum to change or to ask the Venezuelans if they want the constitution changed or not. So pretty much the opposition is, you know, telling Maduro, look, your predecessor did this. He, He asked on the will of the people if they wanted a constitutional change. He didn't impose the electoral process. Why why don't you? Why aren't you following the footsteps of, um, you know, your charismatic figure? We could take a guess. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much, Luis, for, for coming to talk to us. I think it is fair to say we would not have got on one-tenth as well uh, in your absence. It was a lifesaver. Much appreciated. Yes. We hope to have you back. Thank you very much. It's time for the number of the week round, where we take some digits, tie them to a new story, and jibber-jabber on the subject from there. Cristala, you are popping off with enthusiasm. I am. The amount of numbers that I'm you've on got a happy day. Of. I What's have the, the numbers seven and six put together are 76. And before I explain what that means, I'm going to give a plug. I think it's time to give a plug to... News Deeply. Do either of you guys follow News Deeply? Now, News Deeply is excellent. Scott, as our resident media person, why don't you explain what News Deeply is about? Right. Their version I read is actually Syria Deeply. Yeah. Which is, and Syria Deeply tries to go to the ground, uh, citizen journalist, activist, uh, eyewitnesses to give you a sense of what is actually happening rather than what might often be the version you hear in mainstream media, which can be a combination of rumor and speculation uh, because there are less mainstream journalists on the ground. So it combines the fact uh, that you get 
news that you need with more of, I think, a, a human face on it, yeah. at least uh, in many of the stories that I pick up on. And more, so News Deeply is kind of an umbrella for, uh, if you think of it as kind of pop-up uh, topics that without the kind of cynicism. So Scott talks about Syria deeply, Syria deeply, there's also refugees deeply. And so the idea is this moving online presence that has the freedom because it's not newspaper-based and because it can change its themes to have longer, more careful stories that are more investigative, like Scott says, also more human, um, but are also really well, really well-written stories, really interesting stories. So fully plug newsdeeply.com uh, and... 76 comes from Refugees Deeply, which is one of their um, sites. So 76 is the number of women who are taking part in the, in, uh, the Neighbourhood Mothers program uh, in a district of Berlin whose name I will not slaughter. And essentially it was first developed, this program is about a series of former people who have formerly immigrated to Germany who are now acting as mentors for more recent refugees. So these are women who take uh, more recent refugees and and uh, people coming into the country and help them with things like bureaucracy, German cultural norms, settling in, getting their kids to kindergarten, learning German, finding their way around the neighbourhood and generally German society. And it's been rolled out around Europe. Um, and the thing that's remarkable about this program is that it's people who understand very deeply the challenges of integrating into a new society, also mentoring people who are learning about those challenges. So there's a high level of kind of specificity and empathy around these sets of programs that are, that are working, I think, generally pretty well. So, and I don't know, maybe the listeners can tell us if there's something like this in the UK, but I have friends, English friends, who mentor people coming into the country. And there's a slight difference when um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a way that you can complement people who are from the country and people who are recently immigrated into the country, both mentoring recent uh, refugees and people coming in, in a way that is much more soft landing, I think, than than um, than it might be otherwise. So, um, generally, the program power to them, more power to them, doing a really good job. Interesting story in refugees deeply about neighbourhood mothers sharing their what is the title of this story? Neighbourhood mothers share integration wisdom with refugees. Great mentoring program for migrants and refugees in Berlin and around um, Europe. Not sure if it's in the UK or if there are similar projects in the UK. Great idea. Scott, what do you go first? I have got 0.0017 of 1%. So that's 17 ten thousandths of 1%. That is the maximum amount of money that is estimated to be spent on gender assignment operations for members of the U.S. military as a percentage of the entire defense budget spent on health care. Right? So 17 ten thousandths of 1%. At most, $8.4 million out of a defense budget, which is about... $49 billion for medical care for all service people. Now, why do I bring this up? Because it ties to our story of the week, which would be that of Donald Trump deciding almost on a whim that he is going to bar all transgender uh, members from serving in the U.S. military forces from now on, existing members, future members. When Trump tweeted this, uh, he said that the reason he had come to this decision was because of the distortion and the tremendous medical cost caused by transgender personnel. Well, he didn't explain those tremendous medical costs as we are detailing right now because here comes the other part of the story. He 
almost did this off the top of his head without consulting Defense Secretary James Mattis or apparently Pentagon commanders who were actually reviewing the program because it's a pilot program that was instituted in 2016. He simply overrode that review, and it appears for a completely different motive, which is that a group of very hawkish Mm -hmm. Republican legislators went to him and said, "Uh, Mr. President, we will not advance your appropriations bill, including money for your wall with Mexico, if it includes money to pay for gender assignment operations. Trump not only took this on board, he went further and said, well, if we're not going to pay for gender assignment operations, here's my great idea, and 140 characters, actually 420, Mm -hmm. took three tweets. We just won't have any transgender people at all. So a truly Trumpian moment, but one with the serious impact that people who have chosen to serve in the military because they are choosing gender assignment uh, or reassignment are now being told that they can no longer carry out that service. Yeah, but there's also the risk. I mean, the other thing that this implies is the backlash against transgender people who are already facing violence in conservative parts of the U.S. So it certainly doesn't help on that front, does it? No, and that is why uh, I initially said, well, I'll do number of the week and sarcastic story of the week. I won't be sarcastic about this one, that the repercussions mm-hmm. – um, in an American society which was growing more accepting, at least in many areas, uh, of LGBT rights, uh, in which Donald Trump himself said last autumn to try to get votes, I will be the best president for the LGBT community, uh, whether it be a decision based on very superficial uh, knee-jerk reactions, such as the question of bathroom facilities mm. based on gender assignment, or whether it be this, which at this point affects only a few thousand military personnel, but still a few thousand people who I think have been representative of a wider community saying, Mm -hmm. we're just like the rest of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just happen to have this particular gender. So yeah, it's a, what I think is shocking is, is that it's shocking when you have a detailed political process, which is thought out that enforces discrimination. When you have the ad hoc whim of a man who taps into the prejudices of a society or at least part of a society to do this in the flick of a keyboard button Mm -hmm. uh, that's equally disturbing yes and as always with trump there is the substantive side which is usually bad and the procedural side which is usually worse Uh, and setting aside uh, the fact that he didn't consult with anybody which is super bad with with regard to this one of the um uh, other weird subplots of this was that it took him 10 minutes to get from the first of those three tweets to the second. And the first one said, having consulted with my generals, uh, we have decided that it is not acceptable to or that we will not tolerate dot, dot, dot. And then the world basically sat for 10 minutes, <laughs> the Pentagon <laughs> among them, apparently, waiting to find out what it was uh, like is it going to be full strategic nuclear missile exchange with Russia? Like, what is going to happen? Like, well, that the, one's unlikely, let's yes, be honest. Yes, that's true. But given, given how Donald Trump uses Twitter to make, you know, apparently actual policy decisions on the fly, that uh, that was a non-trivial moment of suspense, I suspect, for a large part of the world. In perhaps the why meantime. you should not do business uh, via installments of 140 characters with, with delay in between. He went for lunch, went maybe thought about going for a little walk, maybe went to the toilet. There's that kind of... Lack yeah. of follow through, lack of lack of understanding of the severity. At least it wasn't the coffee moment where, like, he literally went to sleep and then just left it <laughs> left, left us to sleep on the question of what he wasn't going. He and his generals were not were not going to tolerate. Uh, I'm for my number of the week. I'm going to go with thirteen, uh, which is the Thirteenth uh, Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Uh, which those of you who are fans either of the U.S. Constitution or of the film career of Daniel Day Lewis, or indeed of the be? historical career of Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, may remember uh, is the constitutional amendment that abolished slavery uh, in 1865 uh, during the last stages of the American Civil War, and then this the the grinding process by which President Lincoln secured in making this. Uh, 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 happen um, against some pretty tough political logistical 
odds uh, was then portrayed in the book Team of Rivals and in the uh, the very successful Oscar winning Hollywood film uh, Lincoln. Um, I bring it up because uh, it came into the news this week as a result of the appearance on British television, I think it was with Newsnight, of newly appointed uh, White House Communications Director Anthony the Mooch Scaramucci. Um, a former hedge fund of hedge funds or fund of hedge funds um, trader and uh, schmooze, or trader. trader and uh, schmoozer, no, diehard loyalist, yeah. in fact, and schmoozer supreme, uh, both of the Las Vegas financier conference circuit and apparently Donald Trump, um, who uh, was appointed to that job despite the total absence, apparently, of any qualifications, prompting immediately the announcement of the departure, sadly to be missed by uh, the, the world of uh, comedy, Saturday Night Comedy, uh, <laughs> Sean Spicer, the White, the White House press secretary. Uh, but to, to stop our listeners being in suspense any longer about the link, uh, he, uh, the Mooch arrived on British television to be asked about the uh, absolute cluster kerfuffle that uh, that is going on in Congress at the moment as they attempt to cobble together some kind of uh, repeal and replace of the Obamacare healthcare reforms. Uh, the Mooch's answer to, 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 to this question about the apparent lack of success the president is having in cobbling together any kind of passable or coherent or purposeful legislation was that it had been very difficult for President Lincoln uh, to pass the abolition of slavery through Congress. And therefore, we should, of course, bear in mind uh, <laughs> that these things sometimes take time. Now, there are all sorts of uh, angles which one might come at that. One, of course, to point out that passing a constitutional amendment is quite different from <laughs> passing legislation. Another is but to point out that a large part of Congress does? wasn't there at the time uh, when Lincoln was doing this because the Civil War was going on and they were back in their, uh, their, their now... Um, uh, somewhat semi-detached Confederate states. Uh, but I think the more, more important question that we would all uh, think should take priority is why would you say that? Like why, with no need whatsoever, would you reach for the most tone-deaf, insensitive and provocative comparison possibly available to you in the entire cosmos of legislative comparisons? And why would you bring slavery into everything all of the time uh, despite the fact that you know that it's going to uh, provoke the reaction that, that, that this indeed did, which is a mixture of mockery and anger. Uh, first day at the first week at the office for the new communications director, it is safe to say in a way he's simultaneously on and off message, which is to say that if it's the purpose of this administration to irritate people needlessly at the cost of getting your point across, um, he, he did excellently. On June 21st, the world awoke to the news that the line of succession of the Saudi monarchy had been unexpectedly changed. Out as crown prince and first in line to the throne uh, was Mohammed bin Nayef, and in was Mohammed bin Salman, the 31-year-old son of reigning King Salman bin Abdulaziz. The move surprised many, not least the United States, which had cultivated close ties with the outgoing crown prince while collaborating on security issues over the last few years. Young bin Salman has been raising his profile and making waves since his father took the throne in 2015, advocating for a combination of domestic, social and economic reform and assertive interventionism abroad, including butting heads with Iran in numerous proxy conflicts, committing Saudi Arabia to major military operations in Yemen, and most recently orchestrating an economic blockade of tiny neighboring Qatar, which it accuses of funding violent radicals and fermenting political discontent in other Arab countries through its popular Al Jazeera media outlet. The current king is 81, so if bin Salman takes power, we might expect him to stick around for a long time, which would mark a big change from recent decades, when the Saudi monarchy has changed hands between a sequence of elderly members of the, at this point, epically large royal family. So should we be pleased, worried, or somewhere in between? Uh, Scott, uh, wheezed, plurried, um, like what, what, uh, what do we need to be thinking about this? I, I think we just need to watch, because what is taking place in Saudi Arabia and in the region, in an area which has not been known for being exactly the most settled, is still, I think, going to be catalytic in the next few years in terms of what it means politically, economically, and socially. Um, I need to sort of give a name check as I 
talk about this, and that is I've been fortunate to work with a colleague named Umar Karim on this, who is a specialist on reading the Saudi Arabian system from the inside. So if you start there, uh, what we saw with the succession of King Salman uh, in uh, early 2015, when King Abdullah died, and when he brought in, for example, his son as deputy crown prince and minister of uh, defense, it, on the surface, it appeared to be one of those orderly successions that Saudi Arabia does in terms of handing it down. I don't think we could have anticipated what would have occurred in terms of the maneuvering for power within the monarchy linked to a very ambitious program. Because what happened is, is that although he's only 31, and although he was officially only third in line behind the crown prince um, and his rival, the interior minister, Mohammed bin Naif, Bin Salman comes in, and Mohammed bin Salman comes in and says, we're going to bring in Vision 2030, which is this idea of restructuring the Saudi economy to try to diversify beyond oil, to try to get away from a largely subsidies-based economy in terms of almost guaranteed provisions of jobs in the public sector, in terms of sharp uh, support of people on everything they purchase, in terms of commodities, whether it's food, utilities, etc., and you could read this in one way as being, well, this looks like to be a very logical response to what is going to be possibly a long-term depression in the oil price, to be long-term questions about uh, the infrastructure of Saudi Arabia. But the fact is this was branded, this was his program. This was Mohammed bin Salman's program. Uh, so already there is that marker of tying necessary economic reform to a political brand, if you will. And then the second thing that happens, even before this succession in, uh, in June of this year, indeed from early 2015, is this much more aggressive foreign policy that Saudi Arabia takes on. Now, we're in the throes already of the Syrian crisis where Saudi Arabia has played a very important role. But what happens is, is that Saudi decides to open up a new front with the intervention in Yemen in that civil war, uh, backing the government, which is under a great deal of pressure from insurgents, and doing this not only as we will save the government, but as a power play, because the idea being that the insurgents are linked to Iran, which is Saudi Arabia's great rival in the region. So here we are, you know, here we're going to draw the line. Whatever happens in Syria, you don't mess with us. We're still the power to play with. And then on top of that, uh, beyond the Yemen intervention, which has not actually gone that well, beyond supporting its... Um, ally, some would even say client state Bahrain, in its repression of uh, dissent since 2011. Beyond that, Saudi Arabia makes this very ambitious power play just last month, as Mohammed bin Salman becomes crown prince, which is they go after their fellow Gulf state, Qatar. Both members of the Gulf Cooperation Council, those six states that are supposed to work out everything together to maintain security in the region, and Saudi Arabia lines up a few others, such as Bahrain, uh, such as the UAE, and they go after Qatar and they say, you're going to shut down Al Jazeera, you're going to cut links with the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas, you are going to effectively accept subservience on political, economic, cultural moves with a 13-point ultimatum to back it up. And now that is ongoing. That disputes ongoing. But who was the, who, what role did bin Salman play in that? It's his, it's his move. Okay. It, it, allied with the UAE. Yeah. So it's not just Saudi Arabia. The UAE uh, has got land, long-standing issues with Qatar as part of various yeah. rivalry that goes on. Uh, but it was very much Mohammed bin Salman that makes the move. Let me bring it back to the succession and where it fits in. In part, that's because daddy's not very well. Mm. I mean, even when Salman took the throne in 2015, there are rumors, and I stress rumors, but rumors he's in the early stages of dementia. Mm. Although he has appeared to be able to function at certain times, such as during uh, the Riyadh summit in May where Donald Trump was also present, there have been times where he's been absent, including right now. Sure, he functions at least as well as Donald Trump. Yeah, one could say that, true. Um, who Trump's Mohammed bin Salman is, we'll discuss in the next program. But with Daddy effectively being 81, not in the best of health, as Adam points out, you're talking about long-term move for succession, but also very quickly it becomes clear that not only was this uh, a move uh, in which Mohammed bin Nayef had to accept it, the interior minister, and he has shown kissing the hand of Mohammed bin Salman, paying allegiance to him as the new crown prince. It's very clear that Mohammed bin Nayef was put 
probably under house arrest, restricted from moving within Saudi Arabia or from leaving the country. So this was one of those internal power plays. Well, it all sounds very dramatic because, I mean, the um, the narrative that emerged of how this all went down is that basically Bin Naif, who survived uh, an assassination attempt and was injured to an extent we don't know the specifics of back in 2009, uh, was said to have a pretty well-advanced painkiller dependency at this point, which those who wanted him out of the job were saying he didn't have um, you know, the wherewithal to, to, to carry out his duties anymore. But whatever one thinks of that, what they seem to have done is taken the guy, put him in a room, and let him dry out of his... Uh, uh, of his medication, essentially, and then held him there until he signed something, which I imagine most people in that position no. would be extremely speedy in doing. So uh, given the high-wire uh, stare-in-the-whites-of-their-eyes nature of pulling off something like that, like how personalized is this, and how confident can we be that the result of it's going to stick? Well, that's, that's a big question, and it goes from personal across all those big questions we've talked about. On the personal level... Even if Ben Nayef was on painkillers, I happened to, uh, to have contacts in the Saudi interior ministry. And uh, they respected him. They thought he functioned very well uh, as a line manager. Uh, he had responsibility for internal security, which is a huge issue in Saudi Arabia because the question of Islamic State, the question of al-Qaeda, of other so-called extremist groups. Um, and what was interesting is not only did Ben Nayef get pushed aside, but the interior ministry in recent weeks has been stripped of much of its authority uh, over internal security questions, which have gone to the defense ministry mm-hmm. and therefore Mohammed bin Salman. Right. So I, I think the idea that bin Nayef couldn't function, I think that's just uh, is a pretext for what but happened. You're also implying consequences then for internal stability. No. Well, here's the big question. Now, let's just wrap it all together. What you're in the midst of, and this is why I say it's a catalytic moment, even for Saudi Arabia and even for the region, is, is you're at uh, a very high-stakes gamble here. Because if you put together the internal politics with the ongoing regional issues with this attempt to economically restructure, and it is a full restructuring. We're talking about restructuring uh, uh, Aramco, uh, you know, the Saudi vehicle for its oil industry, uh, which has functioned very well over the past, what, 60 years. But the question is, is it continue, does it need to be reformed in the 21st century environment, energy environment? You take that with the whole idea of moving to a much more what you probably call neoliberal economy. Now, if they pull it off and Saudi has a much more diversified economy and if young people feel they have jobs and if they feel like a very highly educated uh, workforce has opportunities – Great. But if the jobs don't materialize, if you don't get the necessary expansion of the economy into different sectors, if you don't see high tech taking hold in Saudi, if it continues to be oil reliant, and if you therefore have pressure on subsidies and pressure on that provision, which has sort of propped up the monarchy for decades, then you're talking about unrest, not Arab Spring type unrest, but discontent, uncertainty, And then you come back to this 31-year-old guy, Mohammed bin Salman, who will be seen as the architect of the gamble. And does he now pay the price for it? I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in terms of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, um, which obviously is is the lens through which I primarily think about, like from a couple of angles. Um, you know, one being that you know, the Saudis felt underappreciated and not beloved under the Obama administration, which for various reasons uh, did not hew as closely to their agenda and priorities in the region as its predecessor uh, had done, um, and partly to do with the fact that it was looking for a, a deal, at least, if not a rapprochement with Iran, which, as, we, as we've mentioned, Saudi Arabia sees itself as playing this Game of Thrones uh, hegemony contest with within in the region um, but Donald Trump's administration uh, has leaned quite hard into the idea that the American Saudi relationship is back you know they went uh, they went over uh, to visit the Middle East he went uh, he, he went and put his hand on the glowing orb uh, next to the king of Saudi Arabia uh, and uh, the president of Egypt I believe I believe it was al Sisi um, and you know when Saudi Arabia escalated this 
long-running uh, sore of a conflict they have with Qatar. Uh, you know, because they've, they've disagreed with Qatar for a long, a long period about a lot of different things. Like they have, they have concerns about its funding of the Muslim Brotherhood. They have concerns about its uh, desire to get along okay with Iran, with which it shares uh, natural gas reserves, uh, which are the source of Qatar's relative independence from Saudi Arabia. Anyway, so that's been running for a long time, but they've clearly escalated it massively. Um, with with this blockade they've put on. But Trump came right out and said, not only is this great, but almost tried to claim that it was his idea, despite the fact that the United States has an air base with 11,000 people at it that they depend on entirely to run their operations in uh, uh, in Syria and Iraq. So, like, wisely or unwisely, in his usual uh, like heffalump way, uh, Donald Trump seems to be all in with, with the Saudi relationship. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out as you know Saudi's more belligerent policy in the region unfolds. But secondarily, if the Saudis are relying on Donald Trump and his presidency and like getting him on side by like treating him like a king and doing sword dances and placing hands on orbs with him uh, as the first major plank in their strategy to get the United States on board with their big plans for some new roll of the dice in the region, you know, that, that seems like a rather short-sighted point of view because everything that those of us who are watching the United States think we know about current trends tells us that Donald Trump may not be long for this, uh, for this world, politically speaking, and therefore it wouldn't be wise to personalize what you're trying to do too much around him. Now, let me put forth a provocative statement, and that is in view of the fact that we've probably grown up for years with the idea of, of looking at the U.S. as being at the center of these regions affairs. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. It, it is one of a number of actors that can come into play, so Trump can come visit. But in terms of being the center, look, in 2011, when Saudi Arabia decided to militarily prop up Bahrain, then under great pressure uh, uh, from internal dissent, uh, it did so off its own initiative and not because it was pushed to by Washington. In 2015, when they went into Yemen with military intervention, they did that despite Washington, not because of it. When they decided to put the screws on Qatar in June, despite the fact that they could pretty much calculate that, that Trump wouldn't oppose it, Trump being Trump, they weren't told to do so by the Americans, right? So in that sense, you have to you, look- might, you might have thought the Americans would tell them not to do it, well, which that, seems to be what they signally failed to do, because like, well, it's really bad for America to have it brought to this kind of head. Which is what happened, which is in fact what happened is rather than this being a U.S.-Saudi relationship thing, the Saudis took advantage of a vacuum in U.S. authority just because of Trump and the chaos with a depleted State Department with uncertainty how he deals with the Defense, uh, uh, defense Department. And indeed, over the last two weeks, I won't stray too far into Qatar for this podcast, but the Saudis, uh, Rex Tillerson came over and Tillerson said, look, you need to sit down with Qatar. You need to all talk to this. Let's all play along and be nice. And they sent him packing. Mm. Now, what the Saudis may face, one of their numerous gambles is, is they may face Tillerson then going back to the Europeans and going to other states and say, look, we really have to work multilaterally to pull Saudi back into line on this. But... The U.S. can't do it on its own. Yeah, but how much willingness is, willingness is there among European states? The, we're judging that right now, even as we record. I mean, what we have seen in the last few days is that Britain, for the first time, as an example, has come down and said uh, that there needs to be compromise in this, that there needs, the Saudis need to back off of simply condemning Qatar for support of terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether we see the same from the French and the Germans, we'll see. Uh, I think everyone's sort of been hoping that there would be a regional medi- mediation. Kuwait was going to be the broker, and that would solve things. The longer that doesn't go on, people will have to start making decisions. But my point is, coming back to Adam's question, is if you read the Saudis just in terms of what they're doing with Washington, you're reading this very partial. I mean, Yeah, well, I mean, the United States could be doing more. Because, I mean, the main problem there, like Tillerson goes, he says, let's all get around a table and yeah. sort this out. I mean, their reaction is going to be... Like, what you think and say means nothing. It's very obvious the president doesn't listen to you, doesn't respect you. You have this understaffed State Department that's going nowhere. Like, what you would really need, uh, and who knows, maybe one day we'll get, is, is a U.S. government that says, hey, you did this thing. Uh, it's really brought to the surface a bunch of intractable tensions that are bad for us. 
knock it off or this means bad things for our relationship. Yeah. But that and that's, that's impossible right now because the US presidency is like paralyzed by having an incompetent goon in it. That's probably a bigger question for a wider podcast, which would be U.S.-centered, which is what you're really asking for is that the U.S. has a joined-up policy in terms of what it does, not only with Saudi, but with Iran and with the rest of the Middle East. And the fact is, is that since the disaster of Iraq in 2003, the U.S. has not had a joined-up policy on what it does, whether it be its response generally to the Arab Spring, whether it be its intervention in the Syrian crisis, and beyond the nuclear issue, beyond the nuclear deal with Iran, credit to Obama for getting that. But the wider issue of how you deal with Iran, they don't know what they're going to do. So if the U.S. doesn't have joined-up policy, then people react. My question is, are we even past the point where an American joined-up policy puts it back at the center of the Middle East? And I think everyone's trying to calculate that right now. Not just the Saudis, not just the Iranians, but the Turks, for example, our friend Mr. Erdogan, uh, who is involved uh, up to his neck in terms of trying to get a compromise on the Saudi-Qatari crisis, for example. I guess what we're saying, to get back to the original question, is when you bring Mohammed bin Salman into this, who has only really effectively been a player for, what, two and a half years, who is relatively young in terms of the appearance, but is in terms of very ambitious, very aggressive, it's a bit of a wild card in terms of how you play that out and how you react to it, Uh, especially when he's adding that wild card on top of the wild card of, we're going to change the Saudi system up so that we can't even see probably 12 months down the line what we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, his main talent as displayed so far seems to be to take long-running underlying tensions and crystallize them as explicit conflicts, which if you then win those conflicts in some dispositive way is great, but if you don't, is less so. I think so. And and the easy way to see that is probably, you know, you just put up Iran as being the bad guy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Iran's behind the Yemen crisis. Well, Iran's not behind the Yemen crisis. Iran's behind the Bahraini crisis. Well, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. But if you just play the blame Iran game, there is a risk he overplays that. Because in May, he said, the next battle, the next battle with Iran will be inside Iran. Well, you can guess how the Supreme Leader and his buddies took that, and they immediately ratcheted up yeah, their I mean, rhetoric. Don't, don't say that, dude. Like, would, yeah. be, would be pretty obvious advice yeah. to give. But that's, but that's what he did. I mean, and no, one, and no one pulled him back in Saudi from that statement. And in fact, the Saudis just doubled down on it. Um, in terms of domestically, though, I do bring it back to that if you look at the economy and people's well-being being the catalyst, uh, he has taken something which I think most people would recognize, and that is, is that the Saudi economy— um, has lived off of oil quite well for decades, but it has become, in a very different version of the Venezuela case, it's become dependent on it. And over the last few years, that combined with political changes in the region has been shown probably not to be a tenable position if you get a decade or a generation down the line. Well, he's decided to take it on now. Whether he does it effectively is an interesting case, and that adds a layer that we don't see that I will bring in here. What he has done is he has tapped into that part of the Saudi regime we don't often see, which is the whole range of technocrats that are there, educated in institutions around the world, quite often very sharp in terms of economic affairs, uh, not beholden to a single department. He's just reached across the entire bureaucracy. They're like, you come work with me on this. Now, if those technocrats can succeed in pulling off this restructuring, he'll take credit for it if they fail. He'll be the fall guy. And there's no way that you can game which way it's going to go at this point. And when you fall in the Middle East, you fall hard. Exactly. And when he falls, though, it will be at that point, because I've seen this for years, is the Saudi monarchy on the verge of falling. I've seen highly respected academics, some I value highly, fall into that trap of, is this the year that the Saudi monarchy goes? No, y'all are jumping the gun here. But if this gamble fails... And if Mohammed bin Salman fails, because he is so different, because he's in his 30s, because you have probably a vacuum beyond him of authority, then that will indeed be a critical moment for the future of the Saudi regime. Stay tuned, folks. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview. Please do that. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes where you can leave us a rating or a comment. That helps other people discover the pod. So we really appreciate it if you did that. Uh, and share us on social media as well. Tell people about this um, smorgasbord of 
intellectual excitement and contemporary news coverage that you've uh, chanced upon, you can come and like our show page on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview for links to uh, the show, to articles, to uh, uh, other things that we take an interest in. You can post comments, etc. there. Um, our participants today have been... Crystal Yukinthu, where can people find you if they're so inclined, Crystal? They can find me on Twitter at at Yukinthu. And Scott, it would be easier to tell people how to avoid you, I suppose, because <laughs> it's a shorter yeah. list. But like, yeah. if they want to seek you out, where would, where would they go? Uh, if you want to avoid me, don't go on Facebook and look for Scott Lucas's. Uh, <laughs> don't go on Twitter and look for Scott Lucas underscore EA. And gosh, whatever you do, don't ever chance upon the finest... News and analysis site on the internet, EA Worldview, eaworldview.com. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, where you can see me in the picture standing next to Lyndon Johnson in comedic pose, um, taking Abe Fortas's place from the classic pictures from the Johnson Museum, in case anyone's curious. I did it the real way. Um, I am also on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn, although uh, I don't use that quite so often, except for occasional bursts of uh, professional self-promotion. Uh, our producer is Connor McKenna, uh, and we have been sponsored today, as always, by the Alumni Impact Fund of the University of Birmingham. Thanks very much to them for their generous support. You've been listening to us from the Pulses Department of the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Don't Ciao. take care.